everybody, welcome back to the Curiosity Chronicles. Today we are continuing the two-part mini-series on pirates. Part two is going to be less of a general overview of piracy. Now we are getting into specific pirates and their exploits. This was a difficult episode to produce, if that's the right word. There is a ton of information. This was by far the most difficult one I had in terms of the research that needed to be done, trying to find the pertinent details, keep it interesting, but also not bore you with all the minutia, while also pulling out the relevant points. It was a struggle, and I hope that I kept it interesting and hope I hit all the pertinent details. But I also need to jump right into this because I can't go overtime by like an hour. So this is the Curiosity Chronicles. My name is Brent Biles, your host. And this is what I was curious about lately. So there is one little part here that I have to start this episode with that is a little bit more generalized piracy, and that's pirate strongholds. I was intending to put this on last episode, but it would have gone over time, and so I pushed it to this episode. And so I want to talk a little bit about the home bases in the Caribbean for piracy. And the first one is Tortuga. Now this I had talked about in the last episode. It's the initial stronghold of the Buccaneers, or the other name they sometimes call themselves was the Brethren of the Coast. Incidentally, I love that name. And they were united in their hatred of the Spanish. And it was not a major stronghold during the Golden Age of Piracy. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I do just bring it up as a, as a mention because it does appear in some fiction. Uh, like Pirates of the Caribbean and I think in Assassin's Creed and things like that. So it is somewhat in the culture of piracy. It's a cultural reference. And so I brought it up, but not really one that I want to focus on. And another one that you may have heard of uh, in a lot of the fiction of piracy is, and when I say fiction of piracy, I mean fictional stories that were obviously based on real life. These, these were real places, but they're not necessarily always totally accurate, which is fine. It's just, I want to mention them because in, in today's culture, people know about them. So Port Royal, again, I had mentioned it, I believe, in last episode, was considered the wickedest city in the world in the 1680s. Uh, it was on Jamaica, and pirates and especially buccaneers spent a lot of time there, and there was many sins of the flesh in Port Royal. Taverns, brothels, prostitution, gambling, everything like that. And it was a lot of wickedness. And again, mostly buccaneers were using it. And it was a fairly large city. In the mid-1600s, there were 5,000 residents and hundreds of brothels and taverns. So you could you could uh, satisfy whatever lust you had in many different places. And it was the main location in the Caribbean where buccaneers and pirates would do the trade in stolen goods. Until June of 1692, there was an earthquake that hit the city. And 33 acres of the city just disappeared into the sea. Just poof, gone. And the earthquake wasn't even that powerful, but the city was built basically on a sand pit, 
and that did not have the proper foundation. So when there was an earthquake, it just disappeared. Pretty tragic because about 3,000 people died. But in the world of the 1690s, many people were very unsympathetic and basically said, well, it's too bad that they died, but that's God's judgment on them for being the wickedest city in the world. So kind of good riddance. After the, uh, excuse me, after the earthquake, they moved more of the merchant-type operations from Port Royal to Kingston, also on Jamaica. And then the most famous stronghold, and the one that I will be referring to the most because it was during the Golden Age of Piracy, is Nassau in the Bahamas. This was the true pirate stronghold during the Golden Age of Piracy. The Republic of Pirates, it was called, was founded in about 1713 by Benjamin Hornigold, who we'll get to more later. And it was a perfect location because there were shipping routes from the Caribbean to the colonies and the Caribbean to England. And it was very safe and sheltered, and so pirates flocked to Nassau. But not just pirates, there were many merchants and many from the American colonies who would sell goods to the pirates and also buy plunder from the pirates. So there's a back and forth between merchants and pirates. Now, the Bahamas and Nassau particularly were supposed to be a British colony, but really in the Golden Age, there were very few British officials on the island, and for a few years it was solely controlled by a band of pirate captains who called themselves the Flying Gang. Excuse me, the Flying Gang. Enunciation can be hard sometimes. <laughs> anyway, it was... A thriving place to be. It was basically lawless, and it was a haven for piracy and those quote-unquote legitimate careers that could make money working for or selling to the pirates. Eventually, Britain took notice, and they were the pirates were driven out or hunted down, and it became a British colony again. But for a brief period of time, Nassau was a true republic of pirates. And so going forward in this episode, when I refer to Nassau, that's what I mean. Okay, so let's get to some actual pirates. Now, before we get into the golden age of piracy, I do want to mention a few pirates who were considered before the age of the golden age and talk a little bit about their exploits. The reason I want to do that is either because they were inspirational to later Golden Age piracy, or they're just very famous and should be mentioned in, a, in an episode about pirates. So the first, Henry Avery, and because of how records were kept in the 1600s, you might see this person referred to as Henry Avery with an E. I refer to him as Henry Avery with an A. It's the same person. If you do your own research, though, you might see different spellings and things like that. Avery spent most of his life at sea, and he started with the Royal Navy, and as we talked about in the last episode, the Royal Navy was a horrendous organization to work for, and so in 1693, he joined a privateering expedition, and that should have been a profitable expedition, but for some reason it just never really got off the ground, and so Avery led a mutiny and took control of the ship called the Charles. He's quoted as saying, I am a man of fortune and must seek my fortune. So he renamed the ship Fancy, and they sailed for the Indian Ocean. They were not pirates of the Caribbean. They were Indian Ocean pirates, and they made their base at Madagascar. 
the most famous capture of Henry Avery's career is when they plundered a treasure ship that was owned by the Grand Mughal. I hope is how you say that. The Grand Mughal... <laughs> I'm sorry. That word makes me laugh. I'm such a child. It, I just, It's a funny word. Um, and I don't mean that to be insensitive or racist in any way, but that's just, it's just a funny word to me in the, in the English-speaking world. Anyway, um, back on track. They plundered the ship of the Grand Mughal, who was the royal leader of India, and Avery became the most wanted man in the world, and also, at the time, the richest pirate in recorded history up until that point. It was an absolutely massive treasure. Each crew member, and there was over a hundred of them, received a share that was equivalent to 20 years of wages on a merchant ship. That was just from one ship that they plundered. Insane. It was the equivalent to like tens of millions of dollars in today's story, today's world, excuse me. And Avery just kind of called it a career after that. He sold his ship, the Fancy, in Nassau. Interestingly enough, Nassau was still a place before the Golden Age and the Republic of Pirates where you could still uh, get away with some shady business. And then Avery sailed to Ireland and was never heard from again. Just disappeared. There's a few... There's a few stories of what might have happened, but none of them are confirmed and probably will never be confirmed. In the early 1700s, so 10, 15 years after he disappeared, there was a story that became popular saying that Avery had made his way back to Madagascar and was the king of the pirates living a life of luxury in Madagascar. And that became the inspirational story for Golden Age Pirates. Make your huge score, live a life of luxury in an exotic location. It's a myth, most likely. There is not really any evidence that Avery became King of the Pirates. A more likely story, and a much more depressing story, I guess, although he was not a good person, I suppose. He was a criminal, so is it really depressing? If Anyway, uh, a more likely story was that he made his way back to Ireland and then to England, and he was taken advantage of by wealthy merchants, and he died a beggar with not even enough money to purchase a coffin. So after a huge score where he has basically enough money to live on for the rest of his life, he basically, in what we would call today bad investments and bad business practices, blew it all and died penniless. Nobody knows for sure, but seems more likely. Or maybe neither of those stories are true. Maybe he just went to Ireland and lived out his days on a small little farm. Who can say? But that's Henry Avery, the inspiration for many Golden Age pirates. Possibly one of the most famous pirates that ever lived is William Kidd, Captain Kidd. And he is another one of the pre-Golden Age pirates that I want to talk about. He was born in Scotland in 1654, and he, like many pirates, served as a privateer. In 1695, he went to London 
and he wanted to get a commission into the Royal Navy. He was unsuccessful, but during that time in London, he was introduced to a Lord Bellamont, and that Lord Bellamont wanted to be governor of New York. So they came up with a plan. Give William Kidd a ship and have him hunt down pirates in the Indian Ocean, so he'd become a privateer hunting down pirates, and get a group of investors assembled who would split the proceeds of whatever ship he captured. One of the investors actually was King William III. And in this scheme, Lord Bellamont basically was going to use the prestige of this privateering mission to leverage political control that could get him the governorship of New York, yada, yada, you know how, you know, political intrigue, blah, blah, blah. So Kidd was given down, given two privateering commissions, one to hunt down pirates, like I said, and one to attack French ships. And most of the men who signed up for Kidd's crew were pirates or former pirates. And privateering did not go well for Captain Kidd. 50 or so of his men died from illness, and after eight months they had not captured a single ship, meaning there was no pay for any of the men that had signed up. So a lot of death and sickness and no pay. You got a lot of disgruntled sailors. And so Kid decided, boy, I got to do something drastic here. So he decided to, like Avery, attack the Mughal treasure ships. So instead of attacking pirate ships, they became pirates themselves. You hear it a lot in the stories. A privateer becomes a pirate in truth. Uh, again, not very successful. They failed to capture any of the Mughal pirate treasure ships. Excuse me. So, August of 1697, off the coast of India, Kidd and his ship called the Adventure Galley captured a small ship flying an English flag. And with that capture, they officially became pirates. They had intended to be pirates for a while, but they hadn't actually captured a ship until this small little, you know, capture off the coast of India. Now, that's when it started getting problematic for Captain Kidd because some of his crew deserted and they alerted the East India Company about Kidd's piracy. And Captain Kidd was not loved by his crew. Obviously, if some of them deserted and then ratted him out, he was not uh, very well liked. He had a quick temper and he was a tyrant. He even, at one point, was criticized by a gunner and Kid smashed this gunner on the head with an iron bucket and killed him. Not really the best way to keep control on your ship. So he continued to capture vessels, and he did get better at it, fortunately for him. And they captured a, chip, a ship called the Queda Merchant, which became his flagship, and he called it the Adventure Prize. But again, many of his crew kept deserting. They stopped in Madagascar and part of his crew bailed on Captain Kidd and they joined up with another pirate. Madagascar was like a hub for piracy at this point, like I mentioned. And so Kidd headed to the Caribbean. And when he got to the Caribbean in 1699, he found out that King William's Secretary of State, which I didn't know that England had Secretary of States. I hope I did not mess that up had declared him a pirate. And the East India Company was 
really behind this. They were not happy with Captain Kidd, and so they pressured the you know they pressured the king into declaring him a pirate. The crazy part is Kidd really ticked off the East India Company. To prevent piracy in the Indian Ocean, the king had actually issued a pardon to all pirates who surrendered before April 30, 1699. And you'll see this as a theme coming up. Kings would often give pardons to stop piracy. Captain Kidd and Henry Avery were the only two pirates that were exempt from this pardon. They were not allowed to be pardoned, so they're obviously going to turn themselves in. So Kidd left the Caribbean, fled, went to Boston, and there his friend, Lord Bellamont, had become the governor of New York. He was in Boston at the time, and Kidd figured he can help me out. He's got the clout to help me out. Captain Kidd claimed that he never committed piracy. He only took two ships. They were French, and that was part of his commission as a privateer. So he said he claimed that his men had mutinied, and that resulted in piracy, and Kidd was not to blame. Very selective in the truth that he told him. I mean, he didn't tell the truth. Let's put it that way. He picked parts of the story, put them together, and made up a convenient lie. It did not work. He was arrested. He was brought to London for his trial, convicted, and hung. Although he wasn't hung very successfully because the first time they tried to hang him, uh, the rope broke. So I think a second rope, then that one was successful, and he died. On May 23, 1701. And then, very grossly, again, this is a theme you'll see later. His body was slathered in tar, encased in an iron cage called the gibbet, and hung, <laughs> and hung from a gallows where the, the Thames River meets the sea and just hung there for years. The warning to not turn to piracy or you'll be hung and your body will be left to the elements for years. Captain Kidd, as I mentioned in the past episode, at one point had a fairly substantial treasure that was never really found, leading some to believe that he had buried it on some beach somewhere. And that is what led to the myth of pirates and buried treasure and treasure maps with X marks the spot. Again, a myth, but partly responsible for that myth is Captain Kidd. Lastly, of these pre-Golden Age piracy is someone who is actually not even a pirate, but is often mistaken for a pirate. And that's Henry Morgan, Captain Morgan. And yes, I am talking about the Captain Morgan that you mix with Coke. Or at least the guy on the bottle. Captain Morgan is often mistaken for a pirate, but in fact he was a privateer. And he was actually knighted for his quote-unquote legal piracy and was appointed the lieutenant governor of Jamaica. Pirates were not given governorships or lieutenant governorships. So a mistake, not a pirate. Good rum, though. I will say that. Captain and Coke is the way to go. So let's get to the golden age of piracy. I mentioned a little bit earlier, but first part I want to talk about is Benjamin Hornigold. He is the founder of the Pirate Republic at Nassau, and he was the mentor and started the career of a couple pirates that we're going to talk about later, Edward Teach and Sam Bellamy. 
And just like you hear so many times, he started his career as a privateer during the War of Spanish Succession. That was a war that went from 1701 to 1714. But little is known about what he actually did as a privateer. What is known is that he turned to piracy around 1713, and that's also when the Republic of Pirates was founded on Nassau. And he led a band of pirates called the Flying Gang, many of which we're going to talk about later. Hornigold was English, and because he was English and a patriotic Englishman, he did not attack English shipping. And he actually viewed himself as a patriot, and even though the War of Spanish Succession had ended, he never really felt that he was not at war with Spain. And so he basically only, well not only, but he heavily focused on attacking Spanish shipping. He was a prolific pirate, but a short career. He took advantage of the royal pardon that was issued on September 5, 1717, and that gave pirates a year to give themselves up and be pardoned for any piracy that was committed before January 5, 1718. So he took advantage of that because he had seen the writing on the wall and he saw that English English government, England, was strongly cracking down on piracy and the end of the golden age of piracy was coming. So he was acting in his own self-interest. He said, get me out of this. And he talked to Woods Rogers and Woods Rogers is famous as a pirate hunter and also the governor of the Bahamas who had initiated this pardon from the king. Hornigold took it a step further. Some of these pirates took the pardon and then just kind of sailed off into the sunset, so to speak. Not Hornigold, though. He became a pirate hunter for Rogers. He was specifically tasked with hunting down a pirate named Charles Vane. Again, we will get to him. He was unsuccessful in capturing Vane, but he did capture many other pirates who were executed. So this guy went from privateer to pirate to basically privateer again, hunting exclusively pirates, only working in his own self-interest. And then became a privateer against the Spanish later. In 1718 to 1720, there was the war of what's called the Quadruple Alliance. That was one thing I learned when I was studying up on the pirates is Europe was constantly at war during this time in history. Like I knew that in the back of my head, but the war of the quadruple alliance, never heard of it, but lasted for two years. Like just this crazy amount of war. So Horner gold is a privateer attacking again, Spanish shipping. Now his death was interesting to me because when I was reading up on the internet, uh, different articles had, a, a story about how he died. And then in the books that I read, there was a different story. So the articles that I found online didn't come from reputable sources. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I have no way of verifying. But I like to use, you know, like the History Channel web, website or uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, things that you know have been reviewed a little bit. I couldn't find anything on Benjamin Hornigold from those types of things. So the articles that I read said that he was on a trading mission to Mexico in 1719 when his ship struck a reef and he died in the wreckage. And what I suspect 
is that one article said that from whatever, and then other articles use that article as their source. I can't prove that, but that's just what I suspect. Or maybe that is what actually happened, and these articles are reputable. But a lot of my research came from a book written by Colin Woodward, and I'm biased to these books because, in my mind, that's a more reputable source. Someone who spends years researching and writing a nonfiction book seems like they would have the information. Colin Woodward, in his book, says that during his privateering time in 1719, Hornigold was captured off of Cuba by a Spanish ship, and he was never seen again. So the speculation is that he either died in the engagement, the naval battle, or he was captured and taken to a Cuban prison where he either died in prison or was executed. Long story short, I have no idea what happened to him, but what is confirmed is that Benjamin Hornigold died in 1719. A pirate who was closely tied to Benjamin Hornigold was Samuel, better known as Black Sam Bellamy. Not much is known about his early life. That's, again, a fairly common theme. There wasn't exactly extensive records kept in that time. But most likely he was born in England, possibly possibly around Devon in 1689. And most likely he was from a family of tenant farmers who were barely surviving. And so he ran away to become a ship's boy at the age of 13. And within a few years, he was a skilled sailor. And he was in the Navy during the War of Spanish Succession. But when that war ended, so did his career. As a sailor, that is. There isn't any proof. But the oral history of the people who live in the Cape Cod area claimed that in 1714 or 1715, Black Sam Bellamy sailed to that area of Massachusetts. There's no proof of that, but there's also no proof to the contrary. So, based on a few other pertinent details, this is likely to have happened, could have happened. And according to the legend, in 1715, Bellamy met a woman named Maria Hallett. And they spent the night together, if you know what I mean. And they talked of marriage. But her father would not allow his daughter to marry a poor, lowly sailor. And so Bellamy vowed to go make his fortune and then come back to marry Maria. Now Maria was pregnant and the baby died. She was accused of murder, whipped, and lost her mind and became the legendary Sea Witch of Billingsgate. That is the legendary story told by the people of Cape Cod. Obviously, that story is embellished, but there is enough supporting facts to suggest, at least suggest, that there was a real person named Maria Hallett, and that her liaison with Black Sam Bellamy was true. What we do know is that in 1716, Bellamy and his partner, a man named Palsgrave Williams, that is, yes, his real name, made their way to Central America and the Bay of Honduras, likely going there to recruit men from the English men that were logging that area. And they started using what's called periaguas, that's a sailing canoe. I'll try to find some pictures, put it on Facebook. Uh, and they boarded their first vessel in March of 1716. They were pirates. They boarded a Dutch ship 
Soon after that, they captured an English sloop using these periaguas. Bellamy fully adopted the pirate persona, and he had a hatred for ship owners and captains who had cheated him in early life. So he was fully at war with the tyrannical captains of the Royal Navy, the ship merchants that had cheated him out of his pay, caused him to be a poor and lowly sailor. He wanted to be and was referred to as the Robin Hood of the Seas, stealing from wealthy merchants to enrich poor sailors. Also, in the process, enriching himself. When he captured a French ship called the St. Marie, Bellamy learned a valuable lesson. He learned that terror can be an effective tool for a pirate. They stripped down, they were in their periaguas, they had basically stripped down to nakedness with only their weapons on their body, and they looked like deranged maniacs. And they were capable of all kinds of violence. At least they looked like they were capable of extreme violence. And that caused the St. Marie and later other ships to surrender without a fight. And Bellamy learned that it was a lot better to look deranged and look like you can do a massive amount of violence than actually doing the violence. After they took the St. Marie, Bellamy and Williams joined up with a crew of Benjamin Hornigold. And Hornigold gave uh, Black Sam Bellamy the captaincy of the newly captured ship called the Marianne. Unfortunately, Bellamy had a falling out with Hornigold. As I mentioned, Hornigold refused to attack English shipping. Bellamy did not share that hang-up. And during a time where Hornigold was away, Bellamy attacked English shipping and Hornigold was extremely angry. A vote was called for and Hornigold had actually lost the confidence of two-thirds of his men. So he could keep his ship, but Bellamy became the new Commodore. So a year after being a penniless sailor, Bellamy had worked his way up to being a Commodore of over 170 pirates in a couple different ships. He upgraded from the Marianne to a ship called the Sultana, which had 26 guns, was an English galley that he captured, and then again upgraded in 1717, he captured the large ship that was called the, I think it's called the Wida, Wida, I don't know how to, but I'm terrible at pronouncing things, W-H-Y-D-A-H, Wida, it became his flagship. And Bellamy and his fleet raided upwards of 50 ships in one year. He was a fantastically talented pirate, apparently. And he stole the equivalent of $120 million. And to this day, he is still considered the richest and most successful successful pirate to ever live. But, as all careers do, his eventually came to an end. April 26, 1717, Black Sam Bellamy in the Wida was caught in a violent storm near Cape Cod. It's basically a hurricane. And the storm drove the Wida into shore where it was grounded and broken up by this violent sea and just ripped apart. Bellamy and around 130 to 160 of his men died. His entire crew, except for two men, were killed. In the storm, Bellamy was only 28 years old. He was this 
incredibly successful career as a pirate. He's younger than I was. He's younger than I am, I should say. The Wida has actually been found. In 1984, they found the wreck. And in 2018, researchers claim to have found remains that they very well think could be the remains of Black Sam Bellamy himself. Pretty interesting. I think there's a type of naval museum that has all the artifacts and things like that. It may be easy to assume that he's called Black Sam Bellamy because of his temperament, a violent and angry temperament, but that's actually not true. He got his nickname because he has black hair. <laughs> it's pretty lame. In all the ships that he captured, there's not one time that it was reported that he killed a captive. Like he said, they used terror to capture ships without actually having to fight. And victims actually reported being treated fairly, and often ships and cargo were were returned if it did not serve Bellamy's purpose. So, in terms of piracy, he was fairly ethical relative to his compatriots. But that story of Black Sam Bellamy took over control of the fleet that Benjamin Hornigold started, prolific and rich pirate killed in a storm off Cape Cod. So the next story of Golden Age pirates is a combination of four different pirates who were intertwined during their career. Uh, those four pirates were Charles Vane, John Rackham, Anne Bonnie, and Mary Reed. Yes, they are women. There is such a thing as women pirates. Starting out with Charles Vane, his career started under Henry Jennings. Henry Jennings, Jennings was a captain who was a rival to Benjamin Hornigold, kind of competing for control of the Flying Gang and the Republic of Pirates. In July of 1715, the Spanish treasure fleet was getting ready to leave Havana and sail back to Spain. They were leaving late in the season. They were caught in a hurricane. Ten of the eleven ships were shipwrecked off the coast of Florida. Now, Henry Jennings, with Vane aboard his ship, set sail, and they were going to try to loot these shipwrecks of the Spanish treasure. And they were doing this under the guise of privateering. Like, they had a privateering commission, but they, they bent the rules a little bit. What they did was they attacked the Spanish salvage crews that were actually on the beach, and they stole a large sum of silver as well as some of the swivel guns and other sundry stuff. And Jennings was, like I said, working as a privateer, but that did not include the salvage camp. And due to political machinations, he and his crew kept all of the loot. Which, yeah, wasn't originally part of his privateering commission. Eventually, Vane left Jennings when Jennings went back to Jamaica, and most likely for a time, he just lived a life of ease and luxury in Nassau, living off his Spanish wreck money. The king, like I said earlier in September of 1717, offered a pardon to pirates, and that split the republic in Nassau. There were some moderate pirates, like Benjamin Hornigold, who accepted the pardon? They were happy about it. They're, let's we we did our we did our business. 
we've made some money, now let's keep ourselves from getting hung. But there were also these diehard outlaws. There was there were two different types of pirates. There were the moderate pirates that were just in it for making money. But there were also the diehards who were complete outlaws and they fully were buying into the social revolt of rebelling against the upper class and the merchants and things like that. They were in full revolt and they were led by Charles Vane. So Vane did not accept the pardon, but he was captured by the Royal Navy and released. It's just kind of, I don't know, it's kind of an odd story. Like he was kind of pardoned, but he kind of wasn't. But he definitely was ready to go back to piracy. It's it's just kind of strange. So one of the men who joined Vane was this man named John Rackham. He's better known by his nickname, Calico Jack. Calico Jack Rackham, because he wore clothes that were made from brightly printed Indian calico cloth. He was very flamboyantly dressed. Vane and his men terrorized the Bahamas. They were taking Royal Navy ships, and they were they were just they were just messing with everybody. And they were different from Bellamy because they relished violence. The book that I read referred to his spree as an orgy of violence throughout the Caribbean. From April 4 to April 28, 1718, Vane captured about a dozen merchant ships, and despite they them all surrendering without a fight, he showed them absolutely no mercy. The crew would beat captives, they would torture them to give them up give up the location of plunder. At one point, the pirates captured a crewman, they put a loaded musket in his mouth, and burning matches or fuses underneath his eyelids, threatening to let them burn until he was blind, at which point they'd pull the trigger on the musket and blow his head off. If he didn't tell them where the treasure was. A different tr- different ship, they had a crewman hung until he was kicking and gagging and his face turned blue. Then he was cut down, fell unconscious to the deck. When he regained consciousness, a pirate took a cutlass and for no reason hacked him across the collarbones and was about to chop his head off when another crewman stopped. He was finally like, no, this is too much. Those types of things happened whenever they captured a ship. They just beat, stabbed, kicked, punched, murdered, looted, and raided all throughout the Caribbean. Vane attempted to hold on to this idea of a public or republic of pirates at all costs. Eventually, though, even he had to admit that it was just a dead dream. And so his goal was to get a crew together and capture a ship that was capable of operating for an extended period of time without returning to a home base. And Calico Jack Rackham became his quartermaster. They were successful in getting a ship, and they were returning to Nassau, and they found that it was blockaded by Royal Navy ships that uh, arrived when Woods Rogers arrived as the new governor. I misspoke there. I meant that they had actually gotten to Nassau and were selling out their plunder, and before they could leave, Nassau Harbor was blockaded. Not when they arrived. Pardon me. Vane escaped the blockade, and this 
was probably the most pirate-like story of any of the stories that I read. <laughs> this is like straight out of a movie. Vane escaped by soaking his brand new very large ship in pitch and tar, setting it on fire, and then towing it on a collision course for two of the Royal Navy ships called the Rose and the Shark. And the goal was that the burning ship would collide with the Royal Navy ships and start a conflagration that would allow him to escape. Although it didn't start a fire with the Royal Navy ships, they were forced to maneuver out of the way, leaving a hole in the blockade, and Vane and his men escaped Nassau in a small in a small sloop they called the Catherine. <laughs> that's that's pretty badass, I'm not going to lie. Vane took control of a brigantine and spent the summer and fall of 1718 capturing and plundering ships uh, near the American colonies. Again, violent, murderous, just horrible in every way. Vane was not a good guy. When you think of pirates and you think of the ultra-violent, maniacal pirate, Charles Vane is that guy. In November of 1718, Vane attempted to capture a ship that turned out to be a highly, a heavily armed French man-of-war. And because he was heavily outgunned, Vane was in favor of escaping. But Calico Jack Rackham and many of the crew strongly disagreed with Vane. Vane considered it a suicide mission, and because of the code that they had agreed on, it gave the captain prerogative of absolute control during fighting, chasing, or being chased. So he said, I'm the captain, we're in the middle of a fight, and we are retreating before we are killed. However, once they had escaped, those absolute powers were gone. And Calico Jack Rackham called a vote, and Vane was accused of cowardice, deposed as captain, and Jack Rackham took his place. And Rackham jumped right into piracy, fully-fledged two feet straight into the deep end, but he did not have a lot of uh, good judgment. And so when he captured a merchant ship close to Port Royal, the governor of Jamaica sent privateers to get the ship and the cargo back, which they did and left Jack Rackham stranded, basically stranded with no money. So Rackham and six of his followers heard and decided to accept the King George pardon, and they did so in mid-May of 1719. Rackham made his way to Nassau, and there he met Anne Bonny. Anne Bonny was married, but Rackham and her fell in love anyway. And that's not very surprising. Anne Bonny slept around with a lot of people. She, she wasn't very faithful to her husband. But she really did seem to care for Calico Jack. So they attempted to get an annulment. The problem was Anne Bonnie's husband worked as an informant for Woods Rogers. And Woods Rogers forbid her from getting an annulment. He said if she went through with the attempt, he would throw her in prison and then have Jack Rackham be forced to whip her. So Anne Bonnie and Jack Rackham couldn't get married but they weren't going to stand for this, what they considered injustice. So they once again, despite the pardon that Rackham had already accepted, took to the seas as pirates. And also aboard their ship is the other most famous woman pirate, a woman named Mary Reed. Rackham, Bonnie, and Reed terrorized the area around Jamaica. 
and they were eventually tracked down by a privateer named Jonathan Barnett. And there was a short fight, and most of the pirates on Rackham's ship were like, forget this, I'm out of here. And they bailed, they went down below decks and were hiding, just waiting for the fight to be over. They may have been drunk. Uh, it appeared that they were not able to maneuver the ship very well, which allowed Barnett to catch up with them. And the only pirates that seemed to be willing to fight were Reed and Bonnie. They stayed on deck. They berated the men for cowardice. They were actually even shooting down into the below decks area, and one of the men was killed. But eventually, two women are not going to hold off a ship full of privateers. Barnett stormed the ship, and they were all captured. Rackham, Reed, and Bonnie were captured, thrown into a Spanish town jail. Uh, Spanish town is a city in Jamaica, I believe. Funny enough, when they were thrown in jail, one of their cellmates, Charles Vane. He was shipwrecked in the Bay of Honduras. He was the only survivor. And he was picked up by a trading vessel and gave a false name because he didn't obviously want to be arrested. And unluckily enough, the vessel that he was on, the captain invited a different captain onto his ship for uh, you know, dinner, basically. That captain knew Charles Vane, recognized him, told the captain of the ship that Charles Vane was rescued by, and he was captured and imprisoned. For reasons nobody really knows, Charles Vane sat in jail for a year, just kind of rotting away, until he was finally put on trial on March 29, 1721, convicted of piracy and hung in Port, Port Royal. And like Captain Kidd, his corpse was hung in chains, and at the harbor's entrance, it just hung there until it finally wasted away to nothing as it was ravaged by birds and insects and the elements. So that's gross. Rackham was also sentenced to death and executed November 18, 1720, also hung. He was able to see Anne Bonnie one more time on the day of his execution. And if you needed any type of indication of the person that Anne Bonnie was, just listen to this. She, this is a direct quote. On the day that Jack Rackham is about to die, she says this to him. I'm sorry to see you here, but if you had fought like a man, you need not have hanged like a dog. Woohoo! Ouch! That's got a sting. Love of your life just absolutely busted your balls for not fighting. <laughs> That's brutal. Anne Bonnie seems like a really nice lady, I must say. Jack Rackham, also placed in a gibbet and hung for all to see. The corpses of Rackham and Bane were actually hung within sight of each other. So it's kind of really strange. Like these guys that sail together and then the other one stabs the one in the back. They go to the same prison. They're executed close to the same time. And then their bodies are hung for all to see right by each other. Come in full circle. Circle of life. And Bonnie and Mary Reed also sentenced to death, but both of them claimed to be pregnant. And at that time, pregnant women could not be executed because that would also include killing the fetus. So their sentences were postponed. Because they were postponed, it lends credence to the fact that they actually were pregnant. They weren't making it up. They were examined, proven to actually be pregnant, and so they were not executed. Mary Reed died of a fever in April of 1721. And nobody knows what actually happened to Anne Bonnie. What we do know is that she wasn't executed. There's no record of her being executed in Jamaica. So she may have died in prison. 
maybe she was released for some reason. Her father was a wealthy planter, I believe. He may have somehow organized uh, a way to spring her from prison. But any records have been lost. She just disappears from the history books after her claim of pregnancy. Pretty crazy story. Speaking of crazy stories, let's talk a little bit about Steed Bonnet. Steed Bonnet, the gentleman pirate. This is probably the weirdest story from the golden age of piracy. Because Steed Bonnet was not your average pirate. He wasn't a sailor. He wasn't a privateer. He didn't come from, you know, the lowly, poor ranks, work your way up and, you know, become a captain of a pirate ship. He was a planter. He owned a large and profitable sugar plantation in Barbados. And for reasons that nobody knows for sure, he just abandoned his wife and children bought a ship and sailed the seas as a pirate. And that's really telling. He was rich enough that he he actually commissioned someone to build him a ship instead of capturing one. And he hired people to sail it because he had no idea what he was doing, but he was still the captain of the ship. <laughs> so weird. Speculation about a death of a child and financial issues may have, you know, people suspect that he may have had like a mental break and just caused him to kind of go insane and turn to piracy and he was totally inept but he had an experienced crew and so he actually captured quite a few ships and he met with some of the other famous pirates including Edward Teach and they agreed to cruise together but Teach quickly realized that Bonnet was inept and essentially took him prisoner and gave Bonnet's ship to his first mate Bonnet eventually regained his ship and went about capturing and killing and just really, he jumped into piracy whole hog. Whatever mental break he had, he went nuts of bananas. And eventually he was captured and tried to use his upper class status to his adventure, to his adventure, excuse me, to his advantage and blamed everybody, including Teach, that this was it wasn't my fault these this is why i was a pirate but he was hung on december 10 1718 small little story but just like really weird steed bonnet was a very strange little postscript to the golden age of piracy but i want to move on from him and talk about what i believe to be the most famous pirate to have ever sailed the seas. And that pirate is Edward Teach, also sometimes referred to as Edward Thatch, but most famously known as Blackbeard. Blackbeard is who I think of when I think of pirates. So I saved him for last. He was good friends with Bellamy and, just like Bellamy, Benjamin Hornigold was his mentor. Nothing really known about Blackbeard's early life. The suspicion is that Edward Teach or Edward, Edward Thatch was a pseudonym. It was probably a name that was made up. And the reasoning behind this was to protect his family from his nefarious deeds. He didn't want their name to be impugned. Which lends 
a little bit of credence to the speculation that he came from an upper-class, well-to-do family, but nobody knows for sure. As can be expected, he was a large man, but his most defining feature was his very fierce-looking, bushy beard. And based on the description of his hair and beard, there are some historians, and I know that this term isn't necessarily politically correct anymore, but remember this was back in the 17, 15, 20s. Some historians speculate that he may have been a light-skinned mulatto, a man with African ancestry, you know, mixed blood, so to speak. Again, no proof of that, but based on his appearance, it, it could be true. March of 1717, Blackbeard had become the fourth most powerful pirate in Nassau in terms of his crew, his ship, and how much he had stolen. And he often sailed with Hornigold, especially after Bellamy had deposed Hornigold. Blackbeard used the same technique as Bellamy. It's not surprising. They were raised, raised. They were mentored by the same man. They would have the same kind of techniques. He used terror to cause ships to surrender without firing a shot. Between the two most two of the most prolific pirates of all time, Bellamy and Blackbeard, they captured 300 ships thereabouts. And there is not one report of anyone ever being killed on any one of those ships. That's impressive. And also wildly out of line with what you expect from the legend of piracy. However, it is true, according to the records that were kept at the time, despite his terrifying reputation, there is not anybody that is known to have been killed by Blackbeard until his final battle. Maybe it's true, maybe they're just bad record keepers. But what we do know for sure is that he was of the belief that you had a lot better success if you didn't have to fight for your stolen goods. 1717, Blackbeard and Hornigold captured a ship, confusingly called the Bonnet, no association to Steed Bonnet, and it was a huge score. Their reputation soared, and Blackbeard became on par with the the pantheon of pirates in the in the realm of Nassau. He was 37 years old at this point. But it was also the time around this time when they learned that the Wida had been destroyed and that Bellamy was killed. Blackbeard was extremely angry when he found out that the survivors were in Boston waiting to be hung. And he vowed vengeance on the people of New England and there is some evidence to suggest that he may have even contemplated attacking Boston to bust the men out. Also at this time when he vowed vengeance is when he adopted his fairly terrifying battle dress. I actually thought for a long time that this was just a myth of the legend of Blackbeard, but it's, it's not. It's 100% true. When he was getting ready to capture a ship, part of the terrifying aspect that would cause people to surrender without a fight was Blackbeard in the way that he dressed. Three braces of pistols hanging in a bandolier-like silk sling. A brace of pistol, pistols is two. So he was wearing six pistols on his body. And he took lit fuses and put them in his hair under his hat, dangling down the side of his face 
which means that his entire face was surrounded by a halo of smoke and fire. Like, as was his intention, a demon from hell coming to wreak havoc on the shipping industry. And literally just the sight of him is what often was reported to cause merchant ships to surrender. No way am I messing with that guy. Take my stuff. Just don't kill me. Blackbeard spent a lot of time operating off the American colonies after Bellamy's death, and he basically had declared war on British commerce. He wanted to do as much as he could without actually killing anybody to bring British commerce to its knees. So he captured vessels near Philadelphia, New York, Chesapeake Bay, and unlike Bellamy, if he found something that he couldn't steal or didn't fit his purpose, he destroyed it, threw it into the ocean, did not return it back to those that he stole it from. And after this reign of terror, he headed back to the Caribbean, and on on the way, I don't can't recall exactly, but while he was in the Caribbean, he captured a French slave ship called La Concorde. And he retrofitted this ship into his flagship. It's carrying 22 guns, he added more later, and 150 men. This was a large ship. It had room for up to 50 cannons. No, excuse me, 40 cannons. And could take on the most powerful ships in the ocean at that time. It became possibly the most famous pirate ship of all time and is known as the Queen Anne's Revenge. And once he was in command of a ship like that, he could raid pretty much anywhere. He headed to the area of the Caribbean uh, called the Lesser Antilles. I did not actually know what those were, but those are the islands like Granada, Martinique, Montserrat, Antigua, Virgin Islands. He raided all up and down that 1,400-mile stretch of ocean and he wasn't just raiding ships he was also attacking harbors he was he was going full on piracy taking on anything he set his mind to people were terrified of blackbeard (laughs) terrified he was the scourge of the caribbean at this point Blackbeard and Steed Bonnet spent the winter of 1717 and 1718 in Spanish territory. He was called the Great Devil of the Gulf of Mexico. That's what they called him. And in spring, they started heading back to the eastern seaboard of the colonies. And at this point, he was in command of nearly 700 men. A huge fleet. And it included the Queen's Anne Revenge, a pirate sloop of war, and two prize sloops. They had a bunch of ships with him as well. And he blockaded an entire port at one point. In the spring slash summer of 1718, he completely cut off the port of Charleston. Nobody in or out. When have you ever heard of a pirate blockading an entire port? They just never had that type of power. He was immensely powerful. And he knew it. And he kept that up for like six days capturing every ship coming and going from Charleston until he finally was paid a ransom of some valuable medicine in a, a chest of medicine and he left. And at that time, and I didn't really see the reasoning behind this, but after leaving Charleston, he intentionally grounded the Queen Anne's Revenge near North Carolina. And then he accepted a pardon 
from the governor of North Carolina, Charles Eden. Unfortunately for Blackbeard, the governor of Virginia, Alexander Spotswood, was determined to get rid of Blackbeard, regardless of any pardon he may have received. And so Spotswood sent ships after Blackbeard, commanded by a name na- commanded by a man named Robert Maynard. Now, Blackbeard had accepted a pardon. Doesn't mean he stopped his piracy. Maybe cut back a little bit, you know, trying to live a little bit more of a reputable life, but no, he was still he was still engaging in piracy. So Spotswood may have been in a legally dicey area in some ways, but he was still in the right. One of the ways that he was in a legally dicey area is that he had no authority to go into North Carolina. So basically he invaded another colony in order to capture Blackbeard. But anyway, I digress. I'm going way over time. I apologize. Robert Maynard caught up with Blackbeard and there was a battle between Maynard's ship, the Jane, and Blackbeard's new ship called the Adventure. And Blackbeard appeared to have won. He fired a broadside of grape and partridge shot, which is a type of cannon shot that is extremely unhealthy <laughs> for sailors. It, uh, it It's like it breaks into little balls, I believe. And it's very deadly to anybody who's not behind cover. So quickly, 21 of Maynard's men killed and Blackbeard gets ready to board the Jane. Unbeknownst to Blackbeard, 12 men as well as Maynard had hid below decks, and when Blackbeard and his crew boarded, they ambushed. And in, once again, a near-movie-like scene, Blackbeard and Maynard actually faced off against each other in a sword fight. But the pirates were highly outnumbered and were being rapidly killed, and the more pirates that were killed, the more the sailors from the Jane were able to focus solely on Blackbeard. And so eventually Blackbeard was shot multiple times and killed. Now there's some debate about how he was actually killed. There are some reports that he was actually beheaded by a Scottish Highlander. Just broadsword, took his head right off. Not confirmed. There are others that say he just finally succumbed to the multiple wounds that he had sustained and, and just finally crumpled to the floor to the deck multiple reports nobody has any definitive proof of one being true but maynard did report that he was shot at least five times blackbeard was shot at least five times and cut or slashed at least 20 times before he passed away and whether he was decapitated as the killing blow or not One thing for sure is that his head was eventually removed from his body and hung from the adventure, and his body was thrown into the ocean. And the legend says that it circled the boat three times, swimming around in a headless chicken with its head cut off type pirate move, and then sank. I doubt that happened. (laughs) But that was the end of Blackbeard's Reign of Terror. And with Blackbeard's death and the execution of Rackham and Vane, the golden age of piracy was basically over. British authorities estimated that between the years of 1716 to 1718, there were about 2,000 pirates operating 
throughout the world, mostly within the Caribbean. By 1725, which is the date that generally is accepted as the end officially of the golden age of piracy, that number was less than 200. So there was a huge reduction in the amount of pirates for multiple reasons. A lot of them had accepted pardons, but also the authorities were just cracking down more and more. And so pirates were being captured and executed. It just wasn't a profitable business to be in anymore. So piracy will never go away, as we discussed. But the romanticized and mythical legends of the pirates of the Caribbean has never been the same since 1725. That is the golden age of piracy because of the prolific amount of pirates that were working at the time, but also how they captured the news media at the time and the fear that was caused by them, both of the general public and the rulers of different countries. But also it's considered the golden age of piracy because that is the vision that we have of pirates. Almost all of the fiction that has been produced has been produced based on the golden age of piracy. And it's been romanticized and mythologized, excuse me, in so many people's minds that we sometimes forget that this stuff actually happened. But I've gone way over time. I could keep talking about this forever. I literally could have done a single episode on every single one of these pirates. I tried to get as much information as possible, but I skipped over massive amounts of information. If you're interested in this, I would highly encourage you to check out the book written by Colin Woodward about pirates. Also the book written by Eric J. Dolan. Those were the two main sources I used. You can see the actual name and everything that you need of the books in the notes of this episode but if you're interested in pirates I highly recommend that you check those out but i gotta wrap this up i apologize i went long i hope you stuck with me to the end i hope you learned something i hope that these episodes once again stuck in your mind the romantic image of pirates come back next time we'll be moving on to a completely different era in a completely different topic. If you want to learn more about the pagan gods that you read about in the Old Testament, come and check out the Curiosity Chronicles next episode. Until then, my name is Brett Bilesma. I am your host, and I hope that you stay curious.